You're listening to Badass Lady Folk, a podcast about socially engaged women and NB femmes kicking buns big and small. I'm your host, Christine Sloan Stoddard. The intro music came from the song Talking Hands by Toxic Moxie. And I mentioned last episode, this is a reboot of my show, The Badass Lady Folk of Brooklyn which premiered on Radio Free Brooklyn in 2016. Now, Quail Bell Press and Productions is producing this podcast for and about incredible women and non-binary femmes from around the world. What I didn't mention last episode is that I founded Quail Bell. That's quail, like the chubby little bird with a funny feather on top of its head, and bell, like the object you ring. Quail Bell Press and Productions is the parent company of Quail Bell Magazine, which will be coming up a bit in this episode because my guest is Gretchen Gales, executive editor of Quail Bell Magazine. Gretchen is a writer, teacher, and disability advocate based in the Richmond, Virginia area. Welcome, Gretchen. Hey, what's up? Hi, thank you so much for being here after a long day of teaching. (laughs) Always, always an adventure, but I am fortunate at least. We had some, I wouldn't call them snow days because we had maybe one snow day and the rest were ice and other torrential disasters days. So um, they were definitely kind of tired today because they've had a four day weekend. And they're like, do we have to do work? Yes, yes you do. I have to work uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, President's Day is nice in terms of getting a holiday if you do get it, but all that nasty weather is not nice. <laughs> We've been getting that in Brooklyn, too. <laughs> yeah, it's just been kind of everywhere. And we're supposed to get another one tomorrow evening or Thursday, and I'm like, just, just a break, please. Like, I want nice, fluffy snow, not dangerous, horrible weather that kills people. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's coming. I don't know if that fluff is coming. We'll see. Eventually. Maybe. So, dear listeners, Gretchen is a fellow graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University, my alma mater, which came up in the last episode with Audrey Garrett. Gretchen studied English and history as an undergraduate and went on to earn her master's in teaching from VCU as well. That's her straightforward early days background, but there's always more than one way to tell a story, as we know. So in her writer bios, I've often seen Gretchen write, quote, the quotation marks are important here. Gretchen once wanted to be a veterinarian, Shania Twain, and a writer all at once. She has since settled down with writing and teaching a variety of content, both nonfiction and fiction. If that's not, oh, oh, unquote, if that's not perfection, I don't know what is. I love that bio. So first, I've got to ask, what is so amazing about Shania Twain? And I mean, no sarcasm. I just plead ignorance. I really don't know. That's totally fine. So especially since, you know, as a kid, I was really, really into Shania Twain because when, I mean, when I was a toddler, basically, is like the height of her career from probably... (laughs) when I was a wee little baby up until probably early elementary school, because I just grew up around country music and she was one of the top artists. So um, I think it was comparable when I talked to some of my other friends, like 
she was a superstar kind of like Selena or someone else of that caliber who represented some sort of like femininity and power and just really awesome fun on a screen and she was so fashionable too like she had so many iconic fashion moments and that's just like one piece of the puzzle just as a kid you know I'm not going to know that much about her background I'm just like wow yes you know whenever she says let's go girls I'm ready to go I'm ready to conquer the planet but as I got older and kind of looked back at her history it's really interesting so she her real name is Eileen but she's called Shania because her mother when she was a child I mean like really small two years old I think she was adopted by her stepfather who was an indigenous man from Canada and she's Canadian as well and so her pretty much her entire name changed from Eileen Edwards to Shania Twain because his last name was Twain and I forgot what it means in that particular tribe's language, but he called her Shania all the time. And he like pretty much raised her and she considered him her father. And a couple of media outlets would be like, oh, well, she's also has indigenous blood because she grew up so close with it that even though technically she didn't, her stepfather got her like an official stamp of like, proving she was a part of the Yeah. So she was there. And so that did cause some controversy. But the reason why she said and it never came up was that if I would have claimed, you know, my biological father as my actual father, that would have been a slap in the face to my stepfather, who was the one who was always there for me. Because um, I know she had a really rough childhood because, you know, the family was poor and they had to do everything they could to survive. And she actually got started singing by singing in bars to be able to get tips to help her family out um so it was a lot and so that's really inspiring to me plus that background of why she is who she is and her identity is really interesting especially in terms of i mean history wise it's very hard to distinguish and you know there's been a lot of conversations about who can claim what culture and i think in this case a lot of the times, you know, that's something her stepfather gave her and said, you know, what you are, you know, me now are part of this family. And so here's, here's this, as opposed to appropriating, um, like a lot of people end up doing. Yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. I actually should look more into her life. Um, I should also say that's, amazing that her stepfather stood up that way because everybody should have some kind of father figure, some kind of um, strong man in their lives who's not a jerk, <laughs> but just a good man. <laughs> Absolutely. Which, I mean, there's a lot of history in like him and her mom fighting and all of oh. this. But he's still, it, it, it's interesting, but I, I'll let you look into that later. But another tidbit of her life was that she went on hiatus for a while because she got Lyme disease at the height of her career, as well as some sort of vocal issue where she had to have surgery and had to retrain herself to sing. Plus, her husband at the time cheated on her with her best friend, but then she ended up marrying the ex-husband of her best friend, and now she's married to her ex-best friend's husband. <laughs> Damn! All right, Shania! <laughs> okay, okay, okay. 
back to you though back to you i, I love all this trivia uh, i will definitely look into shania and just see what's more going on there i really don't know much about her at all i do know as you said she was extremely popular at one point i guess maybe she still is but i know when we were little she was an icon she seemed to be everywhere i just didn't really know anything about her okay but back to gretchen so gretchen's creative writing has appeared in more than 20 publications and she also co-edited Her Plumage, an anthology of women's writings from Quail Bell Magazine. This is our book. This is our baby. And dear listeners, you should definitely order it from Amazon. Please, please, please get it. Her Plumage. Plumage like feathery stuff. Uh, Gretchen's nonfiction writings have appeared in the Huffington Post, Bustle, Ms. Magazine, Rooted in Rights, Your Tango, and beyond whoa that's a lot okay so what first attracted you to writing well that's an interesting question because i've always loved writing ever since i knew how to write you know i grew up with little notebooks um just writing different stories i could not go anywhere without either a book or a notebook or i would be bored out of my mind like i had to have something so <laughs> i think i just started out because it was fun i like to make like really dorky stories um, and just adventures about animals because, you know, oh. the reason why I have veterinarian also in my bio is kind of like my ambition for the first 10 years of my life was to be a best-selling author plus a veterinarian because I was going to save the animals. But then number one, I'm bad at math. Number two, <laughs> I had an incident where I was at a summer camp where we were allowed to like play with the animals at a rescue place. And they said, okay, it's World Veterinarian Day. Do you guys want to see what vets do? But they took us to the spay and neuter center and <gasps> had us watch the surgeries. And I was not ready. Um, I was oh. so horrified. And from that point on, I was like, I got to figure out something else because this is not going to work out at all. Oh my God. But I decided like, hey, maybe I could be a teacher or something and then also write some books I don't know and then I bounce back and forth and you know you know where I am right now so that's really the beginning of that and why why I do what I do because I don't like blood or math oh my gosh that veterinarian day story seems so cruel on one hand but on the other very honest and probably helpful to many kids? Because I'm sure, especially when you're little, that's one of the jobs that you romanticize, right? Because almost everyone loves animals and you think of all the cute, fluffy or scaly animals out there that you could be helping as a grown-up one day. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of little girls want to be a veterinarian or even like boys too who are like, yeah, animals. But then, <laughs> you know, I, I just wish I would have found out in a way that had mentally prepared me more because it did definitely like I got I was so sensitive to any sight of blood from that point forward and I had to train myself out of like almost passing out by seeing even like a paper cut or even <laughs> a fake surgery on tv oh, so no. that's a whole other thing but you know I got to where I needed to be even if it was in the most awful way possible <laughs> hey it could have been worse right at least you didn't have to spay or neuter the animals at this field trip <laughs> oh that's true I would have been like nope 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 <laughs> so what were some of your favorite books and magazines as a kid or teenager 
Oh my gosh. I love, so my first grade teacher read us these books called Junie B. Jones. I don't know how familiar yes! you are. With it. Yes. Yes. I love those so much because she had a lot of sassy energy and I just love the way she described like being so clueless about the social cues of her parents being like, you need to stop being annoying among other things and just having that sassy personality and wearing like weird outfits. It was great. Um, loved those. And I need to like go back and read some of those because they're just, they're classics, even though they're definitely books for kids. They are absolute classics. Hey, how- children's literature can be classic literature too. <laughs> hey, I'm right there with you. Um, other things I liked, I mean, I liked Harry Potter, like every other millennial woman. Yes, Harry Potter. Um, I was in love with the American Girl dolls and books and anything like the magazines. I um, love the, the magazine. I was not huge on the books as a kid, but the magazine, yeah, that was my shit. <laughs> right? And so, and even I loved looking at some things like they had advice books, among other things. So not just the the book that was like, here, here's about puberty, which is like one of their most well-known books and everyone just kind of throws it at their daughters. They're like, here you go, um, just as a thing. But they had like huge, almost anthologies of their best advice. And I've always been the type of person who likes to be helpful. And so reading those, I could be like, oh, well, maybe I could be helpful in this situation or know what to do. And they were just interesting. There's kind of like an anonymous gossip column, but for yeah. <laughs> My husband reads advice columns almost every night before bed. Like that's one of his bedtime rituals. <laughs> he read because there are some crazy ones out there. Like I think the grown up version for me is the ones that Slate comes out with. Some of those are absolutely. Yeah, he, he reads Dear Prudence. He reads Dan Savage, Savage Love. Um, I mean, those are the, I used to read Dan Savage religiously because it came out in Washington City Paper, which was one of the local papers for me growing up. Um, I don't really read Dear Prudence. Like he'll read it to me if there was a really good one. Or they're just like really crazy scenarios. It's kind of like on Reddit, how, which I mean, you know, on Reddit, it could be anything. It could be someone that's making up a weird story just to get extra karma. But there are some absolutely bizarre stories just in the advice columns. Like at one minute, it's just like, what should I do to honor my grandmother's legacy when there's like this simple um, issue maybe between family members? And then there's the ones that are like, my husband like died by parachuting and then I found out he had an affair with like three flight attendants and I'm like whoa 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 I was about to say where's the scandalous part because the tragic part is not enough there have to be both elements of the story tragic and scandalous (laughs) oh my god yeah that's I love them did you uh have any favorite illustrated story books as a kid I loved, so I don't know if you know which these are, but they were called the little McDuff books and they were, it was like a little Westie, like the little white dogs. And oh, he, yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. I still have a little, I have all of them and I have a tiny McDuff stuffed animal because I refuse to get rid of it. He is, he is my dog and <laughs> I'm keeping him. Same thing with, I'm trying to think of what else. 
I was really into. There was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Stinky Cheese Man. I yes! Oh my god! The author actually lives in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Really? <laughs> and he was a, speaking of school teachers, he was a school teacher for a long time. He was even a house painter. When he was getting his MFA, he painted houses. That's amazing. Well, yeah, if you never give up, guys. Never give up. <laughs> tell him he he did good and I even read some of those stories one day to when I was teaching ninth grade it was just a day where they needed something kind of joyful and a little bit of a break and so we kind of talked about different fairy tales and looking at how you can up in those and whatnot I'm like we're gonna read the stinky cheese man like if they don't come away with this class with anything useful like if I can't teach them anything else then they can remember the stinky cheese man yeah I think that is very useful knowledge good job Good job, teacher. <laughs> uh, what about in college or even more recently? What are some books that you've loved as an adult? So I think in late high school, one of my favorite books of all time is The Picture of Dorian Gray because I had never seen something mm. like classic literature like that of how it talks about moral depravity and how the, like the visual representation of sin and awfulness decaying your own portrait and self-image quite literally and you know becoming something on the inside that is just so horrendous um i've always loved when i was trying to really get into classic literature at first i could not stand jane eyre i thought it was the worst book ever but oh. once you get past the first 10 chapters it's fine um i had to you know go through that but anything gothic or kind of dark in nature i really like so definitely things like Jane Eyre or Picture of Dorian Gray. What are some other Gothic books that I've read that I've really liked? I'm trying to think, but I've always been, you know, just like every other teen, really love YA dystopian books like Hunger Games or yeah. even recently because, you know, I do have the excuse, not that you need one to read YA lit or anything else, of trying to find different books that appeal to my kids right now. And one of them is the Neil Shusterman's Unwind series, which has not aged at all because it was in, I think it was published in 2007, but yeah, it's still- I don't know it. Never heard of it. What is it about? It is crazy. So it is a scenario where America um, had a civil war over reproductive rights, but no one could really decide on anything. So they decided, okay, well, you can't have an abortion, but if you end up not liking your kid or they become a delinquent, you can have them unwound. So it, it is a crazy synopsis and you wouldn't think that a lot of people would let their kids read it, but it's so objective about what this looks like morally, like what, what is right and wrong with these situations. And all the kids kind of talk about what it would have been like, like they would have rather, um, you know, not been unwound or born or something like that, <laughs> but it doesn't like, it's not preachy. It's definitely mm -hmm. like, what would the society look like if this happened? Which again, it, it is a crazy series. The first book was like, okay, like we're going this direction, I guess. But the, you know, the kids really love it. And you can see them at a lot of school libraries just because mm -hmm. they are just so dynamic and they make you ask those questions. But as for other adult, like more adult <laughs> literary fiction here, um, I really love Severance by Ling Ma because I, I read it at the very beginning of the pandemic, which is probably a mistake because it was 
almost identical as to how it started. I was like, um, this is a little bit weird. But of course, the plague or the sickness in that book is different. It makes you kind of like do very, I would say, monotonous tasks every day, or you forget about certain things and you just um, develop a routine. It's not like a deadly illness. You just literally do like your laundry all the time or you look blankly out the window or Mm -hmm. something very odd in that way Um, but it also ties in kind of a very common millennial thing the whole idea of severance of getting a severance package when you are cut loose from your job and it kind of also has those themes of cutting loose from old routines or old ways of thinking so Mm -hmm. i thought it was so unique in that way Great. Actually, those last two books that you mentioned segue perfectly to my next question, Question, which is how do you think fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction, nonfiction, or shall we just say literature in general, can advance social justice or even help build communities in real life or online? Since everything is online now. Although I will say, you know, a lot of people still very much love paperback books. And that includes even kids. Everyone's like, you know, the kids are ruining because they want everything electronic. No, I have plenty of students who don't want that. They're like, I would rather have a piece of paper with a pencil and a regular book. So (laughs) like, no, it's not Gen Z ruining books for you. Like there's plenty of books. They're not in danger of going away because a lot of them also like paper as well. But on your actual question here, (laughs) I'm thinking of um, just thinking about how in my teaching career, like teaching them how to see different perspectives and things they wouldn't be able to really look at or experience, they can do so through a book. So um, being able to sit down and be like, well, why, why would someone think like this? And then having a book that does it so well where this is what would happen if this were a thing or all the possibilities of everything that could go wrong very frankly in certain situations where people are like i wish the universe was like this then we wouldn't have this problem well here's another problem so (laughs) being able to think critically about it's not just very straightforward answers there's a lot of in between there so i know that There's been some studies where kids who have read Harry Potter grow up to be more empathetic. I don't remember the stats on that, but I think that could apply to any kinds of books where characters have some sort of sense of morality, or there's a very clear message of, hey, this is complicated, but also, you know, do the right thing, and this is the morally correct option. Or if there's a character who is morally dubious, like show them something that is, you know, obviously they're not making a good choice or the choices that they're making may be because of external factors that have forced them to make make this type of choice. Hmm. Well, in general, do you think that your students have more empathy than a lot of the adults you've known? And these could even be adults you've known in college, in the workplace where you grew up, or or is it hard to say because humans are humans and maybe, and some, some people would argue, oh, well, kids just don't have that much life experience yet. How can they really have empathy? <laughs> I think it's, it's just really a human thing. Um, I know, you know, again, people will say kids these days do this. I'm like, no, kids really haven't changed. It's mm. what is 
around them that really influences what they're like. Because, you know, the other day I was even looking at some um, old journals that I wrote as a kid and also old assignments I turned in in high school, which I was like, why do I still have these? Um, just as piles of papers, as we all do, when you're in some sort of form of academia or education, you're just a paper hoarder. But I was looking at all of it and I'm like, wow, kids really haven't changed because some of my answers or what I would have said are very similar to what they would put. So again, it's kind of thinking about, well, their individual circumstances and what we are putting on them, like different pressures or different expectations of the society that they are in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will definitely talk more about your teaching later on. I'm glad that you started to bring up some of that. What I would love to do right now is listen to you read some of your poetry. Ooh. Yeah. So I think I have, so I have two different ones and one of them, they were both published during the pandemic, which (laughs) yay. Yeah. Like yay, relevant literature, but both of them I have in these print journals here. And the first one is from, you know, I think it's called Nebo, Nebo, something like that, but it's from the university is it the university of arkansas hold on let me double check so i'm not just talking and embarrassing myself um it doesn't say exactly but that is okay i'm sure if anyone wants to see where it originates from um they're really great editors i really enjoyed my experience and they also have a little tiny art piece which is kind of a weird experimental piece with roses in it um that's how i can best describe it it's kind of weird and gothic but that's kind of my particular brand at this point Ooh, wait who's the artist did they put the artist's name by it oh, it was mine oh it's yours okay okay so they chose your artwork and your poetry yes i felt wow. very well and this was a part of their speculative issue which was all about you know again speculative writing with science fiction fantasy or something else in that realm which i thought was interesting that they included this um because this is a poem that is based off of, I love true crime. So off of the documentary, there's something wrong with Aunt Diane. And it was about that Tacoma or or Taconic Parkway crash that happened probably over a decade ago where the woman, like no one knew why she was driving backwards on the highway and it was absolutely Mm -hmm. catastrophic and devastating. So I kind of took the perspective of her son, the only surviving son, and went about it in that way. So I will go ahead and stop blabbing and I will actually let the literature speak for itself for once. All right, this is, I flew out of the car like Superman. A son's puzzle pieces from There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. Mommy's head hurt, she couldn't see. Sleepy Hollow to Pleasant Road, Tappan Z to Terrytown. one tooth equals 10 drinks, an absolute in the passenger seat. Two. Maybe it was because she saw the hills in the distance and had to show us all how far she can go, a take charge person, the way she was. But I flew further, even without a cape. Now I am Clark Kent. My phone booth, a suburban shell, glasses, and a part-time eye patch. Three. Aunt Jay says he's off all day, and so am I. He never wanted me to go to therapy, but when I remember 4.1 northbound Taconic, I resume combative crying, fight off the pile of family above me. All right. And then my second one is from Plain Songs, which is published by Corpus Callisum Press. I think that's how you pronounce that, out of Hastings, Nebraska. And this one is called Gonna Tell My Kids. That this is the snow, 
pointing at ice I crush from the freezer. Adop adopt a fluffy white dog. We own the only polar bear. The last riverbank in existence is Daytona Beach. Tubing is just connecting empty water bottles together that wash ashore. Winter time is for beach bodies. Take selfies in front of castles made of cremated forests and hardened magma. The storms raging outside aren't like the ones back in my day. They won't believe memory number four, the one where we used to play in the rain without radioactive droplets burning our skin, singing as we caught them in our mouths. Hopping in puddles, choreographed to jump as high as the dreams we were encouraged to make before we graduated. The real world handed us diplomas with puppet strings attached. Master's degrees, marionettes for $10 an hour, healthcare unnecessary for unreal boys and girls. This is what I whispered to my abdomen, explain why they cannot live outside where grandma and grandpa beg them to be every day. Huh. So there was, we go. There's my lovely poetry there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So what or is gonna tell my kids based on something? So it's based on so this is from a collection that I've been kind of shopping around for a publisher for. Um, that's all about being on the cusp of Gen Z and a millennial, which is what mm. I am. Um, and one of the, the common memes that's been circulating is like, I'm going to tell my kids that this was blank or, and like, it was kind of a funny image of something like, let's say for example, someone put like Larry David and said, going to tell my kids this was Bernie Sanders and just like jokingly tell them about what things are. But in this case, I'm kind of thinking about, well, what, Am I going to, you know, tell my kids if we're on a planet where there is climate change and drastic things happening? Mm -hmm. So putting together what kind of reality do we as people make for them and tell them, well, what is snow? What is a polar bear when these yeah. things exist? Wow. Huh. So I think stylistically, both of the poems are definitely within the same vibe but I think the influences were so different and that's fascinating so how do you choose how do you what, what what and I I know that I always personally hate this question when people ask me but what are your influences what inspires your work what <laughs> I know it's so hard because it's sometimes on a whim right where you're thinking about well what what does influence it and I think at least for the um the something something's wrong with Aunt Diane one it's again me thinking of well I love true crime this much and I found the narrative around the son so interesting about how they presented his story and the way that the family dynamics are because of this whole issue of you know they don't believe that she could really drive drunk and wasn't really an alcoholic but Stephen King had actually written a story based off of the same story and his intro to it in the audiobook was talking about you know I know what happened and it's hard to come to terms with the fact that someone can hide such a dark secret from you but it's really not out of the blue to think that she could in fact have been hiding this alcoholism the entire time and I really am influenced by interesting like family dynamics and how tragedies or any kind of dark event that would cause issues influence the way we think about each other or how we interact with our day-to-day -day lives. So 
thinking about again like meme culture like what is that going to look like if the earth is basically a boiling pot or what does that look like when you know you've grown up and you have this legacy of being known as the kid who survived this horrendous awful car crash that it's a true crime staple and your father cannot accept the fact that you might need therapy for being that because it does mention the fact that the father didn't want him to go to therapy or didn't want him to have certain glasses to make him look different i'm like buddy you gotta face the fact that you need to help your kid who is the surviving kid and not be stuck on you know i know that's a horrible thing to go through but you need to create something for your kid that is in their best interest not just for your image at this point well i commend you for bringing in meme culture and tv or true crime i think a lot of people unfortunately still have this idea that poetry is pretentious or at least often is pretentious uh, but why can't popular culture be a part of poetry why can't poetry be a part of popular culture i think you do well at straddling both of those lines well thank you because i don't think i've you know, I've never been into super pretentious poetry. It's just, it makes me on. So uh, writing poetry, and I think that's for a lot of authors, writing the stuff that you would want to read. And that's <laughs> what I would want to read. And it was funny because I was like, should, you know, can I even write a poem about true crime? But I saw quite a few books when I was at VCU and I was looking at different literary journals. You know, a lot of people talk about things that happen in the news or yeah. other cases that I recognize. And I'm like, wait, I can do this. Like what <laughs> people are already doing this? No, I want to do this now. <laughs> it's all just storytelling. It's all related. It's all part of our lived and imagined experiences. And I bet actually that was something I wanted to ask. Do your students ever read your creative work that you know of? Um, I have no idea if they do. I'm sure they're like, what? <laughs> and they're wondering about my sanity, which I think they do anyhow, just because I do have a very vivacious personality with them. And I'm very open with them about, you know, some of my struggles with disability, which I know we're going to talk about later. So I'm not going to hijack this. And go <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So on that note, then, so you've been just to clarify for listeners, you have been a middle and high school English teacher since you completed your studies, right? Correct. And I started, my student teaching was in eighth grade. And then my two first years of teaching were with ninth and 12th grade. And then they put me back in eighth grade, which we'll talk about why momentarily. Okay. So what is it like teaching right now? And I bet you love that question. Like, could you paint a picture of what this whole pandemic has been like for public school teachers, or at least speak for your own experience. I guess you don't want to speak for others, but I'm whew, especially hoping that you'll illustrate this for people who either refuse to understand what it's like teaching in public schools or a lot of private schools for that matter. Mm -hmm or even just for people who truly have no idea, like maybe they would have empathy if they understood, but they just don't know. Right. So for me, at least, you know, I was very, very fortunate to be able to go virtual. My district decided to kind of offer a choice of what people wanted to do. And Woo. so I was put into, they created a whole new online school, which was 
an enormous feat. I was like, how are you, how are y'all going to make a school <laughs> within the next couple of months? But they did it. I was like, whoa, okay. What does so, that mean? What is an online school for a public school? Like, I think many people have some idea of what it might look like for a college, but. Yeah. So I think it's different depending on, you know, again, like what a district needs, but in this case, and, you know, we're definitely piloting the whole idea and I'm sure it looks different depending on a teacher's technolo technological abilities, of course. But for me and how we set it up, it's us in a Zoom class and we'll all be, you know, with our cameras off besides me in Zoom. And I will lead them and say like, hey, good morning. And I might have a poll for them where they get to vote on certain things. And the first one I do is a how are you poll just to see how many kids are feeling kind of like either good, meh, or not doing so good. And Wait, are kids, those the actual options? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just, you know, they're very, like Gen Z is very chill. And so that's kind of how to get their attention. Like I'm doing good, doing meh, doing not so good. And I have a little frowny face next to it because it's extra oh. sad. And so most of the time it'll be either between like good or meh. And thankfully <laughs> I don't have too many not so goods. Um, but I do, I definitely tell them, because it's, it's anonymous, uh, and so I'll be like, you know, hey, if you need any assistance or want to, you know, talk about something, I can help you find someone who might be able to talk to you, or if you just need to vent about something, that's fine, too. Um, then we go off into my new thing, ever since Zoom added the poll feature, um, is a silly question to kind of get them a little bit more excited and awake. So today's question was, would you rather have an extra finger or an extra toe? And I'll normally get them to you know, please tell me why in the, in the chat, why you believe you, your opinion is superior. And it kind of also helps them to figure out different persuasive writing techniques and to be able to argue for what they want to do, except it's funny little topics. So again, it's a good icebreaker. And then we go into journaling and then independent reading time where I let them, I mean, you obviously can't look at them reading from their houses, but you say, this is your time to go read and remember that I will be asking you about what you've been reading. And that's what I'll do. I'll pop into their different rooms and ask them like, hey, what have you been reading? Um, do you like the book? And if you don't, let's find you something that's not awful because no one likes bad books. And what we're really trying to as, as like public school educators now, at least in the um, English, language art, ling English language arts community is to have kids be able to have a lot more choice in what they read. Like obviously don't eliminate things that are required, but giving them more choice in the stuff that they do read so that they, they are building their reading comprehension skills and they are interested in what books can offer. So that's what we've been doing there. And for kids who may not have physical copies of books, there's also, we have a whole database now, it's so cool, of digital ebooks that the librarians have bought for the county and so they get to pick some books on there and they can download them onto their school issued laptops mm -hmm. and they can read that way as well and then we do some sort of lesson which normally involves me sharing my screen and you know they can kind of play along and i have the chat in zoom open and most of the time i have it like just as an option to send messages to me and that way I see a lot more introverts actually participating because they don't have to say it out loud. And I can say, 
Anonymous says this, very good job, Anonymous. And they're like, thank you for not <laughs> giving my name out, um, you know, because they are at that age where a lot of self-consciousness is happening. So I'm not going to push them and be like, here, here, little Johnny, you need to share your answer. Um, and you have to be identified with your answer because they're so, you know, again, they're at that vulnerable age where they don't want to sound stupid and they're very self-conscious. So just making sure that they can still have a voice in their education is important to me. And so I definitely encourage, you know, again, I even tell them, I'm not going to put you on blast, uh, mm -hmm. especially if you get it wrong or anything. I just want to know where we are. And that works most of the time. There's always still the ones who don't respond, but I can still see their progress in other ways when they do assignments. So I can give them that individual feedback that avoids embarrassment. Hmm. Okay. So thank you for all of that. Two follow-up questions. So you mentioned that some books are still required. I'm curious about some of the titles. Are these classics or at least YA classics? Uh, why do you think these books are required? Who chooses these books? Right. So, and I mean, this, again, it's so different between different districts and states, but some will be requirements for if you take something like the International Baccalaureate Program, which is a program focused on kind of a global education stance. And that's just a program that is a specialty offered through the schools um, in some places. Same thing with like advanced placement for college credit um, or an advanced class where they're required to, you know, show how you can demonstrate comprehension of a book. Although even there, there's a lot more choice there. They might have a list of books to choose from, or they can, again, be assigned maybe one or two different books they can choose from. But the ones that I've seen the most, I would say, have been, what is the one that keeps coming up? The Hunger Games always comes up. Um, really? Absolutely. Yeah, we have a whole, so when I was at my regular homeschool, when I was teaching in person, we have a whole book room and like every English department has a book room where there's tons of different books they can choose from. And, you know, there are teachers who do whole units on the Hunger Games and will do units on books like, um, I know in middle school, definitely that, that series Unwind that I was telling you about, they might do something on that or Among the Hidden, which is another um, like middle grade series about another dystopian universe. And so a lot of them are very dystopian because they get the kids' attention really well. Um, <laughs> and look I, at the times we're living in. <laughs> like, wait, it's reality. <laughs> and I joke with them about that. I'm like, this is dystopian, aka um, realistic fiction. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, yeah. Um, and so I've also had to be careful about recommending books. I'm like, if you don't want a dystopian book about a plague, here are some options for you. Okay, so, but to, just to clarify, so Hunger Games, for instance, that is a book that would be on a list of approved titles that a teacher could choose and build a unit around. That is not something that everybody in a grade at a high school or in some county or district would have to read, right? More than likely. More than likely, although, I mean, it has happened before, but that was more, we're really shifting towards, again, student choice. So yeah. I would imagine less of, okay, everybody, we're reading this one book is going to be happening. It's, mm. you know, still a thing, because I know that some of my seniors from last year said that they had to either read A Catcher in the Rye or 
I forgot which what the other one was, but they had the choice between those two. Um, and um, no, that, that's what I was going to say. So I graduated from high school in 2007. I went to Grinnell College, which is a private liberal arts college. I was there for one year. Then I transferred to VCU, uh, which, dear listeners, is a massive public school with um, a lot of smaller programs in it. But I remember at that time, just about, even when I was at Grinnell, um, which is an, uh, an elite school where many people went to private high schools. And even when I was at, v at VCU, which is a totally different kind of school, they, it seems like almost everybody had to read A Catcher in the Rye, uh, Tale of Two Cities, The Great Gatsby, Romeo and Juliet. Like almost everyone, it seemed, read some of those books during high school. So there was, I'm, I'm just wondering like now what the, I, I like the idea of student choice, but it does kind of surprise me. Right. So again, it's kind of like a, a new initiative, which is by a lot of forward thinkers in the English, English language arts community, which are other English language arts teachers have written like pedagogical textbooks on it. And so that's why it's probably so popular now, but mm -hmm. I personally, so for my freshmen, I always do Romeo and Juliet just because it is a good introduction to be like, hey, you know, you might have to read some Shakespeare later. And also, you know, there's some dirty jokes here and you can get away with talking about more intense topics without it being so like, you can't say that and you can't do this because of X, Y, and Z reasons, but I can normally spin it like, okay, you know, these people are making some pretty bad choices here. So not morally telling them right or wrong, but giving them the opportunity to see like, what is the culture like? What are things that are happening? Um, and I do the same thing with my seniors. I do Macbeth and depending on if it's advanced or um, just a regular type of class, I will mix it up um, and do maybe like show them a video clip of a certain scene or an animated version of it or use an excerpt from a graphic novel to show them how is this kind of adapted so that it's not just sitting down and reading it, but they're also experiencing it how it's meant to be. Um, and I also like just getting animated with it and showing them how to engage with the text. So I, I'm a believer in at least give them one book that they have to read to at least expose them to something else, but don't give them a bunch of books that they're going to hate. Because here's a confession. I have never read A Catcher in the Rye. Like, I, if you gave me a quiz on it, I'm not going to know what in the world is on it. I have no idea. All I know, it's about an angsty boy, and that's it. <laughs> well, I think you, uh, you summarized it quite well. <laughs> As my husband would say, you don't have to read it. I actually liked it. And, I, and that's even with uh, me admitting that the protagonist is very angsty. <laughs> okay, so I'm curious about what kind of inequities you've noticed during the pandemic. Like what has been exaggerated between your students um, or even between the teachers, the administrators? And are there any groups that you uh, have observed being pitted against each other right now? Oh gosh, well, for me personally, I know that in my district, like everyone is working so, so hard. Like no one, at least to my knowledge, of course, is, you know, going against each other or like playing dirty, like 
games of one-upping each other or anything like that. We're all just working so hard to make sure that we can do the absolute best for our community and what we can provide during this ridiculous time. I'm not going to say unprecedented. I've heard it too many times. I'm going to say ridiculous. <laughs> I'm just going with that. Um, and I've just admired so much, you know, the administrators understand, the principals understand, and they've been very much like, I get it. Like, this is impossible. So do the best you can. Remember to rest. And they'll tell us like, hey, you know, stop checking your email at 11 p.m. Just get some rest, do the best you can. So, which is very good. But I would say inequity wise, like it's, it's all stuff that's been there um, right. due to, again, you know, lack of funding for public education and pouring all the resources into standardized testing, which takes a lot of time and efforts and energy and also sucks the fun out of learning <laughs> whatsoever. You know, tests aren't terrible, but the sheer amount of tests that a lot of these kids have to take that have to prove whether or not they've mastered the material is so overwhelming, which I would say a lot of them have to do more than I did, which I was at the very peak of the beginning of like No Child Left Behind. And mm -hmm. I remember taking my first test probably at around third grade and they would sit you down and be like, okay, kids, this is very important. Here is a granola bar and some milk and do the best you can. You don't want to take a test when you're hungry. And, you know, they'll give you like fun review games and you have to be able to answer these questions. And so what I've seen is just such a burnout in kids over testing. They are so over it, which I get because it's exhausting and it's not the only way to show that teachers can do their job. And a lot of that is, you know, what people will point out in education programs is that a lot of people at the federal level, as well as other administrative levels, like within certain departments, don't have teaching experience or don't have enough to be making these decisions or really represent what we want in education at all. So like, even right now, testing and what that's going to look like in a few years is completely up in the air because there's a new administration. You know, Betsy DeVos is gone, but now there's a new Secretary of Ed and things could change in a minute depending on what he thinks should be the next thing that is going to be best for the kids. And so there's a lot of back and forth and fighting on that level about, I know what's best for the kids. Like, no, I know because I was in school once. And <laughs> once upon a time. <laughs> upon a time, which, you know, again, I don't think people like shouldn't be involved in education or have an opinion based on their experiences, but it is so eye-opening to see it from the perspective of actually teaching because I saw so much stuff behind the scenes when I first did student teaching where I'm like wait what like this is the kind of thing that was happening or like what I would have to face um just the sheer amount of paperwork or tracking down kids and making sure that they have everything they need or anything else and that has pretty much tripled because we have to keep account of which kids have been absent or haven't been going on zoom um which ones might have an issue at home. We have to also be hearing out for anything weird happening in the background of Zoom. Like if there's something weird that we might have to report as mandated reporters, that's also there. And then kids are also where right we, now. 
Could you, sorry, could you just clarify for listeners who don't know what is a mandated reporter? Oh yeah, no problem. So it's a requirement by like, you are legally obligated and required to, if you see something like child abuse or something like neglectful, for example, or anything that puts a child's life in danger, you have to report it. You can't just be like, oh, I won't tell anyone, you know, it's our secret. You, you got to tell it. Um, pretty much immediately, the moment that you recognize something and it clicks, you have to call Child Protective Services or let an administrator know and let them kind of walk it through it with you, um, which includes anything from mental health to, again, we have to be trained for signs of abuse or neglect. We have to do so many certificates about recognizing those types of behaviors. So it is... It, it, it's quite the journey. So if the children have their cameras off, which I've heard from many school teachers is the case at many schools in many districts across the country, how as a teacher might you suspect that there's some kind of abuse or neglect going on at home? You know, I haven't had, you know, thank God, I haven't personally had to, you know, figure out anything like that I may you know drop a line to administrator be like hey there's something kind of fishy going on here but in that case you may have to listen out for if they have certain behaviors or if they suddenly stop talking or they bring up something a little bit kind of weird and sometimes you know I know that I've seen a lot of teachers talk about how if their kids leave something unmuted and they don't know that they're not on mute they can hear like Mm. awful things happening in the background you're like what is going on okay figuring it out that way or if they accidentally leave their camera on you know you might be able to see something there if they accidentally flip it on or anything else so most of the time it's just humorous stuff like I'll say (laughs) that's good yeah the only like weird stuff that's really happened is that kids will be like hey um can I come back here in a little bit? My dog's trying to eat a turtle or um, I have a kid whose neighbor likes to mow the lawn like almost every other day. I'm like, sir, you can't possibly have a lawn that needs to be mowed that much. But, you know, he says, I promise you, like, this is what is happening. And he's like, do you want me to point the camera at the neighbor? I'm like, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I can hear the lawnmower. We're good. So just a lot of chaos because they can't control their environment. They're legally obligated to be there. So whatever the neighbor's doing or whatever else is happening is also now in the classroom because the classroom is now everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So I want to wrap things up. I mean, I do and I don't, but because we do typically stick to a time limit, I'm (laughs) curious about your interest in disability rights, if you could just explain what that means for you, how you even got interested in the first place, and how you make room for that kind of advocacy in your teaching and your writing. Right. So the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because I was not diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, which is a neurological disorder that causes various Um, uncontrollable movements or sounds until I was 22. And it was because a lot of the times neurologists as a kid, um, you know, if you go, they'll miss the signs because they can come and go as they please. They can be very inconsistent throughout many different patients, to be frank. And plus, they mostly expect like, no, it can't be Tourette's because it's not as severe as 
media has portrayed it to be. And they kind of fall for that trap when, no, there's actually a lot more of us out there that have more mild to moderate cases as opposed to the ones where people are like, wow, this is fascinating. They see all the cases of more severe Tourette's, which would be, again, the um, like rude gestures or cursing uncontrollably or anything else, which is its own battle and, you know, definitely not invalidating how stressful that must be, but that's not the majority of Tourette syndrome cases. And a lot of kids, like I've met so many other women, especially who were not diagnosed till later because of, again, there's a stereotype kind of like autism or ADHD that girls don't have it as often, which is probably not true. It just appears in different ways, but you use the standards of what a little boy or an adult male would present as kind of the band-aid solution for every single person, it's not going to go well. So I finally figured it out after kind of, this is the one time WebMD did its job without making me terrified that I had a terminal disease. So I kind of looked it up and I realized, wait, like this is consistent with what I have experienced, which is the onset of some sort of tick uh, between the ages of six and 15, which I was eight. Um, anxiety, OCD, um, and having the, all these other habits. And it kind of flared up again when I was in grad school. And I was so upset because I was like, I thought this was gone. Like everyone or my doctor said, you know, don't worry, it'll go away when she grows up. No, it didn't. So just being able to now have the authority to say, you know, no, this is my experience. And this is what I am when so many people have told me, no, this is all in your head. Like, I think you're overreacting. No, this is again, my reality. And just because I don't present it the way that you expect is, doesn't mean that it's not true. Um, and we've seen a lot of that just invalidating women's experiences, especially in the medical community, which is hard to a lot of people to believe like it can happen so often, but it can because bias is everywhere in that way. So that is, one big reason why is because it happened to me. And so it's easy to speak as an authority, not a complete authority, of course. I don't know. There's so much about disability rights and culture that I don't even know because it was not normalized growing up. And I don't think most people have any kind of disability history background or know about half the things that people had to fight for and are still fighting for mm -hmm. in America and all over the world that our truths in what we are and how we are able to access things that people take for granted. Mm -hmm. What was that piece you wrote for the PBS website that related to disability? Yes. So that one was, it was, it's a place called Interact and it's in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, um, that kind of region. And it is an art center that is dedicated to people with disabilities who identify or, or feel comfortable with being artists and they use artistic expression in order to kind of talk about their own stories or to even cope with the less than pleasant sides of disability, which people either kind of put like, oh, it's the worst thing ever or it's inspirational, but there can be a middle where we're just people as well. So <laughs> there's definitely all sorts of facets and what I will say for that, and I did a whole piece on them talking about how they use the art to 
adapt to the skills that they have. So mm-hmm. one person I had interviewed has generalized anxiety disorder. And I was like, hi, me too. And he was like, isn't it great? I was like, yeah, it's so much fun. <laughs> and we talked about that. And he has severe stage fright, but he loves theater. And mm-hmm. so he played a character where his character had severe stage fright and he had to sing. And it was accurate because he was like, you know, stumbling on his words because he has actual stage fright. So <laughs> that and putting that together. And then there was also um, some other people in there who they make different earrings out of craft materials and they're just able to express themselves any way they want. And they even teach each other. And what I'll say is like not both surprising, like it felt good, but then I was like, uh, that means it doesn't happen that often is I had some staff members reach out and say, thank you for calling them artists. Because most of the time when people do stories on our, you know, residents, they'll say, oh, it's their cute little hobby. And then they go home and they're, you know, do whatever disabled people do and infantilize them and don't take it seriously. But they very much, they sell their artwork on their website and they are practicing artists just because they don't fit the mold of what that should look like, but they do. But there's so many media outlets that will say, you know, it's their cute little hobby. Isn't it so inspirational? it so (laughs) well thank you so much Gretchen that's all the time we have folks listeners I encourage you to read Gretchen's work you can find her poetry her fiction her nonfiction, as well as her artwork at writinggales.com I'll put it in the show notes so you could just click through the link thanks so much for listening to the badass lady folk podcast I'm your host Christine Sloan Stoddard. You can find out more about me and Quail Bell, including the magazine and the press and production company at www.quailbell.com. Did I say L three times? It's two L's.com. I will also put that in the show notes so you can click through. Tune in next time. Woo!